a seat. Good morning. If you have your Bibles, let me invite you to open with me to the Gospel of Mark. And we are going to begin in Mark chapter 8, verse uh, 27, with the passage that we studied last week. And then we're going to transition into verses 34 through 38, uh, the passage that we will be studying this week. Um, If you didn't notice already this morning, especially if you're a visitor, uh, the, the songs that we've sang this morning, and even the concentrated time of prayer that we had this morning, are weird. And by weird, I mean that the way in which people have talked from the stage this morning, from the platform, uh, the way in which they've talked is totally countercultural. The way in which Stephen prayed this morning goes against everything that your nature wants. It goes against everything that the world around us teaches. It goes against our nature from an early age. Um, when we got on our knees and, and, and prayed, and we're praying this prayer of self-denial and praying uh, that, that we would follow Christ entirely and all these things. I was back there with my son, Owen, and that reminds me, if you're in the three- or four-year-old class, uh, you're free to go with your class now, if you haven't already. But Owen's in, in back there with me, and he was... Uh, he got down on his knees as well and, and, and got down in the, the prayer position. And about midway through the prayer, I heard Owen uh, praying, and he's four years old. I heard him praying. And so naturally, I mean, I want to hear what my four-year-old's praying, you know. And so I lean in to try to hear, and I couldn't catch it. I thought he might be thanking God for Amelia and thanking God for some other things. And that's what he normally does at, at dinner. He just thanks God for everybody who's present or, or and so I'm listening, and I couldn't hear him, but he noticed me leaning in, and, and Owen <laughs> leaned over and goes, Dad, did you hear my prayer? <laughs> and I said, I said, no, no, I, I didn't hear your prayer. And he said, I really want a cheetah costume and a, and a, a, a treadmill of my own. <laughs> and I thought, what a beautiful picture of Stephen trying to lead us in a prayer of self-denial. And... Uh, my son naturally praying for God to give him the random desires of his heart. Um, So speaking of that and and recognizing that, uh, I want to recognize that on the front end because the task that I have this morning in preaching this text uh, before me is an impossible task without the power of the Spirit. Um, Because the things that Jesus says in this paragraph of Scripture um, are impossible for us uh, to hear, receive, believe, and apply to our lives, unless God does some type of miracle in us this morning uh, and every day after. So, so look with me uh, at verses 27 through 33. Again, that's, that's from what we studied last week so that we have context. And Jesus went on with his disciples to the villages of Caesarea, Philippi. Now on the way he asked his disciples, who do people say that I am? 
And they told him, John the Baptist. Others say Elijah. Others uh, that you're one of the prophets. And Jesus asked them, but who do you say that I am? Peter answered him, you're the Christ. And Jesus strictly charged them to tell no one about it. And he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed. And after three days, rise again. And he said this plainly. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But turning and seeing his disciples, he rebuked Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. So that's last week's passage. Now to this week's, verse 34. And calling the crowd to him with the disciples, he said to them, If any one would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? For what can a man give in return for his soul? For whoever is ashamed of me and of my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him will the Son of Man also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. All right, let's, let's pray together. Father, I pray that you would uh, cast aside all distractions this morning and that you would uh, work a miracle by your spirit to help us to understand these words that the eternal Son of God said 2,000 years ago and that the Spirit of God preserved for us in this book to read and hear and apply this morning. We pray that you would... Uh, Help me, Father, uh, to forget myself and to be caught up in the Spirit of God that I might say only what you want to say. And we pray all of this by your grace and for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. So Jesus has absolutely stunned his followers with these two paragraphs. In this conversation. I mean, he has wrecked all of their presuppositions when it comes to what they thought Jesus should be like. Their understanding of Jesus had been shaped over the course of their entire lives by the culture that they lived in. Their understanding of Jesus was shaped by cultural expectation. And by their own desires, more than by Jesus' own words. You see, they think that Jesus primarily was coming to establish the kingdom of God by way of a military 
conquest. They thought that all this healing stuff and walking around and acting poor and, and acting humble and meek, that all of this was just precursor to the moment where Jesus put on his armor and took it to the Roman Empire. They believed that Jesus came to defeat the forces of Rome that were oppressing him. They saw the promises of the Old Testament and the new kingdom and the new world that God had promised. They thought it was happening then and there. But Jesus' plan seems totally contrary to their cultural expectation of what God's plan should be. I mean, how can suffering and rejection and death be a part of Jesus the Messiah's plan for ushering in the kingdom of God. That sounds a whole lot like losing and a whole lot less like winning. (laughs) I mean, that sounds like Caesar and Rome are triumphant, that evil wins over Jesus. It's so shocking, so countercultural to the disciples' understanding of what Jesus should do that we saw last week, Peter actually takes Jesus aside to chew Jesus out. (laughs) Peter takes, takes aside the miracle worker, the one who walks on water, the one who feeds thousands, and Peter takes Jesus aside to help Jesus understand a better path forward. Verse 32 says that Jesus said all this plainly, and Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. And Jesus uh, recognized the disciples are watching Peter rebuke Jesus for this plan. So Jesus responds strongly so that everyone recognized just how off Peter really is. Jesus says, get behind me, Satan. You're not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. Peter, you're letting your culture, you're letting your upbringing, you're letting all your experiences, you're letting all your background, you're letting all of your sinful and selfish desires, you're letting all of that cloud what I'm actually telling you. Like, what I'm actually saying right here in flesh and blood to you, you're not listening to me, you're listening to something else. You're listening to louder voices from your past and in your present and in your head. You're listening to louder voices than my voice, which is saying the plan is first going to be suffering, death, and a cross. I mean, Peter had good intentions, But his good intentions were clouded with cultural presuppositions rather than than being clear with God's actual revelation right in front of him. He trusted man's wisdom, and Jesus was calling Peter to trust in God's wisdom. You see, the crucifixion and the death of Jesus was absolutely essential to the future victory of Jesus. I mean, Jesus did come to establish the kingdom of God, but the first enemy to defeat was not Rome. The first enemy to defeat was sin and death itself. I mean, it was through dying that Jesus would take humanity's guilt and shame on himself. It was through dying that Peter would be forgiven of his sin of unbelief right there. (laughs) Jesus would, would, through dying, overcome humanity's number one enemy, which is death itself and the punishment humanity deserves for sinning against a holy God. If Jesus had not paid the price through suffering, death, and resurrection, you and I would still have a price to pay. 
for our sins. All of us would be on our way to an eternal death if the eternal one had not died in our place. So to oppose Jesus' crucifixion was for Peter to stand in the very place of Satan, opposing the plan of God to save humanity. And Peter didn't even realize it (laughs) because he was listening to the voices of his cultural expectations more than he was listening to the voice of Jesus himself. But you see, Peter's Peter's perspective of God's kingdom needed adjustment, not just when it came to his, his expectations of what Jesus would do. He also needed a change when it came to what he expected following Jesus would be like. So, so as we progress through the book of Mark, last week I talked about there's a structure to it. Uh, we're in the middle of this sort of like big sandwich. It begins with Jesus healing a blind man. It ends with Jesus healing a blind man. But along the way, three times in a row, Jesus says, this is what I'm going to do. His disciples don't understand. And then Jesus corrects them. And, and when Jesus corrects them, he doesn't just correct them about what Jesus is going to do. He, he takes it a step farther and corrects them about what following Jesus is going to mean for them. Because just like they thought Jesus was going to be this sort of royal figure to come in in military conquest and sort of set up shop on earth immediately, they thought that they would be at the right hand of him receiving all the honor and praise because they were the chosen 12. So after Jesus corrects them about them getting Jesus wrong, Jesus turns to the crowds. Apparently there's more than just the 12 disciples here. There's more disciples present. And Jesus wants to clarify to everyone that following him isn't going to be like what they think it should be like. Look at verse 34. And calling the crowd to him with his disciples, Jesus said to them, If anyone would come after me, so if any of you want to follow me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. Now, I'm assuming that a hush fell across the crowd when Jesus made this statement. Or perhaps not a hush, maybe there was a a rustling and a squirming and a mumbling of a very uneasy crowd trying to process what Jesus had just said to them. I mean, they're all excited when Jesus is healing the blind and healing the the deaf and he's feeding everybody free Chick-fil-A and he's he's like doing all the things that serve their felt needs. But there is no way around the shocking and off-putting nature of this sentence. Jesus says very clearly, without stutter or qualifications, if you want to follow me, you're going to have to be willing to die just as I am going to die. Now, as I studied this passage this week, I I felt even in myself this temptation and this tendency Um, that I think all of us in this culture probably do when we come to this text, is that we soften the rough edges of this text too quickly. So we bring it into our context way too quickly, rather than sitting on what it must have been like to hear it in their context. So we've been too quick to read Mark 8, verse 34, and say, well, of course, we don't really have to die for our faith. For us, this just means that we have to pick up our cross of having a bad day or we pick up our cross of having to live in this place or work this job or bear with this particular burden or this difficult person. 
But let's not be so quick to apply it this way because that's not how the first century hearers would have heard it at first. There's no qualification in this text that says, well, just apply it this way. The first century hearers would not have understood this cross to be merely a figurative thing. I mean, when we consider the symbol of the cross... We see in our minds steeples and jewelry and bumper stickers and t-shirts and the the thing that hangs behind me, behind the baptistry. When we consider the symbol of the cross, we have all sorts of thoughts and feelings. But when they considered the cross, they thought about none of those things. (laughs) No one put a cross on their jewelry and wore around their neck. When they considered the cross, when they heard Jesus use this terminology, they remembered vivid images of limp, bloody bodies on display in the middle of the town as a warning for anyone who would go against Caesar, the king. When Jesus said that following him would involve carrying a cross, he challenges his followers to a level of dedication, a level of commitment, a level of faith that would follow Jesus even to the point of death even to the point of one of the worst kinds of death. This was not a hypothetical call to the people standing there with Jesus. And it wasn't a hypothetical call to the very first readers of Mark. Remember, the gospel of Mark is written later. It's written to a particular group of Christians in the city of Rome after Jesus has died and rose again and resurrected and ascended to the Father. As we pointed out before, the gospel of Mark was first read in the city of Rome when persecution had begun to intensify. It was written during a time and read during a time for the first time when the Roman Emperor Nero had labeled Christians to be an enemy of the state. Their narrow views of being one God, of there being one God and one way of salvation made them an easy target and a scapegoat for the emperor's political purposes. When the original readers read, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me, they did not immediately apply this to minor difficulties of prices in the market going up or the cost of a chariot being too much. They applied it to the names and faces of those in their communities who had already died because of their commitment to Jesus. So in one sense, in the first reading of this text, this would have actually been very comforting to first century followers because this verse meant that Jesus knew from the beginning that follow him would involve this kind of persecution. In fact, the very very verse meant that Jesus expected his followers to endure the suffering. So if, if you're in a context where your friends are dying for their faith and you come across this verse and it's read in your church, there's a sense in which, okay, we're not doing anything wrong. King Jesus said this was going to be a part of what it meant to follow him. This verse means that Jesus affirms and in fact emphasizes that following him is worth even your physical life. This is the truth number one that I want you to walk away with this morning. Truth number one, true life is found in giving your life entirely to Jesus. Read verse 34 and 35 again with me. He says, 
Calling the crowd to him with his disciples, he said to them, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For, for whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. So follow with me here. There is a self that Jesus is calling you to deny. There's a self that's denying, and then there's an old self that's being denied. <laughs> there's a self Jesus is calling you to deny. There's an old you, a sinful you, an independent you, a self-determining you, a selfish you, that Jesus says the new you should deny if you want to follow Jesus. That means that following Jesus will require you to deny yourself of old values. It means following Jesus will require you to replace your old values with something that's supremely valuable. Something more valuable than your old values. And that something more valuable, that new value, that new life, is obedience to a new Lord and Savior wherever he leads, according to whatever he says. Even if that means death. That's an insane calling that Jesus is asking for. I mean, who would want to deny themselves? Who would want to pick up a cross? Who would want to surrender their own will to that of another unless, unless, somehow, it is eternally worth it? Jesus is saying in this text, to give up your life now is really to give up nothing at all. In light of the life you gain in following Jesus. Jesus is saying it's eternally worth it. There's a form of life you must give up and give over to death in this world. But there is a life that you get. There's a life you cling to, a life preserved for you, a life that is yours starting the moment you start following Jesus and is yours even after the moment you die. A life far more abundant, a life far more eternal than you could ever imagine. In fact, if you give up your life here on earth by dying to self or even physically dying at an early age, Jesus says you will have lost nothing. You will have gained everything. A life worth dying for is the life that you gain. There are worse things than dying. Jesus is communicating that there are worse things than physically dying. Among those, I think, is a life wasted. A life that gives itself to temporal pursuits and then passes on into nothingness. And many of you here in my voice this morning, uh, just in a room this big, many of you are wasting your life right now on things that have no eternal value whatsoever. The things you cared about most, no one will remember in 50 years. You make money to spend money on yourself and your family. You strive for better health just to live a little longer, but to die just the same. You strive for happiness and comforts in a very temporary kingdom while there is a robust eternal electrifying eternal mission of God happening in the world there are people to impact for eternity for the next billion years and more that's waiting you Jesus word to you this morning is simple if you keep working to save your life as it is 
to say your life as the world around you says it should be. If you keep working for that life, you will lose what you're striving to maintain. Like grasping for wind, you will come up empty-handed. But if you will give all that up for the sake of Christ and the sake of the gospel, meaning the sake of the good news, you will find life more abundantly than you can ever imagine, both here and forevermore. This is why Christianity was spreading, spreading so rapidly in first century, second century Rome. Because people were going to their physical deaths singing praises to an eternal God. And people were asking, what is it that they have that can make them so joyful in the midst of such intense suffering? And thus they recognized that even though they were losing physical life, the Christians had something that all the rest in the Colosseum didn't have. Something apparently worth dying for. True life that everyone's looking for <laughs> is actually found in giving your life entirely to Jesus. And it's true that in this room, most of us uh, will not face martyrdom in this particular un very unique context in Christian history and Christian geography. It will not mean crucifixion for us. For some of us, someday it might, but for most of us in this context, it won't. But what would denying yourself and giving your life completely into the hands of Jesus look like in this culture, in this historical social moment? What would following Jesus entirely mean for us? I don't know that I can actually answer that for every person in the room, but I know that obeying his very obvious revealed word would be a good start. <laughs> I know repenting of our apathy and complacency, perhaps even our idolatry, would be a great place to begin. I know recognizing that just like Peter, we have cultural presuppositions about the way we think God should be and the way we think following him should look like that are more about the American dream than they are about the text of Scripture and the revelation of a holy God. Jesus goes on to further elaborate the kinds of things you would have to put aside to follow him completely. And really, he references two desires of the old self that are common to every culture. Material possessions and the approval or praise of man. Look at verse 36. <laughs> what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? What can a man give in return for his soul? Truth number two, following Jesus means prioritizing eternal souls over temporary stuff. The language of verses 36 and 37, they, they sound business-like. They sound financial. They sound transactional. You've got the words of profit, gain, forfeit, give, return. Jesus breaks down all of life into the choice between a good deal and a bad deal. He articulates what would be a very bad deal. It would be a very bad deal 
to gain all the stuff that the world has to offer, and in the process, pay the price of your own soul. Now, when the Bible uses the word soul, it points to the deepest part of our personhood, our truest self. Jesus warns that giving away forever your own soul, your own self, your own personhood, in exchange even for the entire world, would be a foolish deal. And it's stunning to me how wrong we get this with our own lives. And how wrong we get this with the lives of others, even. How little we will value a soul, which is eternal. And how much we value stuff, which is not. I see this even in how parents will treat their children, and, and it's staggering to me. It's frightening to me how many parents who claim to be Christians seem to care very little about the soul of their child. I mean, it's frightening to me how high a priority parents who claim to be Christians will put on their child making good grades, doing well in sports, having a good social life, staying out of the bad kind of trouble, having material things they never had. But how little parents will prioritize the eternal soul of their child. Man, I pray I never care more about the things of the world that I can get or give to my children. Over and against their eternal souls being made happy in Jesus forever and ever. How much time, I mean how much money and effort do you plan to sacrifice this year? in order to maintain or accumulate stuff you think that will give you life in comparison to the time, money, and effort you plan to give to see your own soul and the souls of others be forgiven and forever joyful in Jesus. There is an eternity on the other side of this life, and we can't take anything with us except the people we love, whom we lead to Jesus, the eternal Savior, of their soul. What could, what could you gain in this world that would be worthy of one soul? What could you give in return for one soul? I think Satan does his best work in this country not by leading you to the most vile of sins, but, but by rather distracting you with the most trivial of pursuits. Eternity. Is what Jesus says you must set your eyes upon if you are to follow me. I read a, a short biographical work on Jonathan Edwards at the beginning of this year, and he's a man that was used extraordinarily by God, had his faults for sure. But one of the things that set him apart from the rest was his understanding of eternity and his grasp of not <laughs> wanting to waste time. He wrote 70-something resolutions that he would read weekly to check himself to see if he's wasting his life away. And one of them was very simple. He would read this every week, a resolution he wrote to himself, resolved that I will live so as I shall wish I had done when I come to die. Resolved that I will live so as I shall wish I had done when I come to die. Following Jesus means prioritizing eternal souls over temporary stuff. But in verse 38, Jesus transitions to rebuke a different kind of temptation. Listen to what he says in verse 38. 
For whoever is ashamed of me and of my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him will the Son of Man also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. Truth number three, following Jesus means living to please God, not man. So Jesus presents us with another choice. The first bad deal was between stuff and souls. But this he presents us with two audiences. Two people observing our life. Two people to live, uh, to please. He presents us with the first audience. And he describes that audience as an adulterous and sinful generation. (laughs) He describes that audience, that society as a society that's marked with unfaithfulness, not only to one another, but unfaithfulness to God. I mean, we live in a world full of people cheating on one another and cheating on the one true God. Like adulterers consumed with selfish pleasure and passion, people all over the world move from one desire to the next, one little God to the next, seeking to satisfy a craving in their soul for something. And in Jesus' context... We've seen that the Pharisees and the scribes are the ones that are most ashamed of Jesus. Jesus is not the Messiah they were expecting. He eats with sinners. He converses with Gentiles. He emphasizes things like humility and sacrifices, not pride and victory. He advocates for heart change and repentance. He totally is unimpressed with position or power or outward religious purity. To the Jewish elite of the day, Jesus was an imposter, and he was a threat on their little gods of pride and power and position. He was a threat to their idols, and he had to be done away with. They were ashamed of him and his claims because they thought that their way of life was life more abundant. In the context of the original readers in Rome, it was the Roman Empire that was ashamed of Jesus. Jesus' followers claimed that Jesus was the only one worthy of worship as opposed to the pantheon of Romans' gods. Jesus... Followers refused to participate in the pagan parties and the drunkenness of the days. Jesus' followers refused to bow the knee to Caesar in worship. Jesus' followers were strangely humble and unimpressive, and their God was someone who had willingly died on a Roman cross. First century Rome was ashamed of Jesus and his claims. To follow such a, such a man who would die on a cross was unhonorable. It would be to throw away your reputation, throw away your honor, throw away your prestige, throw away everything that you had been living for your entire life. And in the 21st century America, we are ashamed of Jesus and his claims. Our culture is ashamed of a Jesus who claims to be the way, the truth, the life that no one comes to the Father except through him. Jesus teaches that we should deny ourselves rather than please ourselves. He tells us that every human being is sinful and in need of saving from an eternal hell where everyone will go lest they trust this Jesus who saves us by his grace. Jesus teaches that any sexual activity outside the bounds of marriage uh, between a man and a woman is sin against the holy God. Are you kidding me? Jesus warns against living for more and more money and more and more comfort. Jesus warns against seeking the praise of people. Jesus' message is the anti-American dream message. (laughs) The American dream message is Independence Day. Jesus' message is be dependent on me. (laughs) 
Be dependent on the God who made you and the God who saves you. It's not about your personal freedom. And you know what you do with your freedom? You destroy yourself. It's about coming under the authority and leadership of a God who loves you and who actually knows what's best for you. This is the world we live in. And this world applies pressure upon us from all sides to to not only join with them in their adulteries, but to celebrate their adulteries. This world puts pressure on us to think the way they think rather than listen to the words of Jesus, the man who conquered death. It applies pressure upon us to conform our lives to be in line with what our neighbors expect of us and what our sin nature wants of us. It applies pressure of varying degrees. I mean, in some settings, failure to conform may simply mean peer pressure and social isolation. In some settings, failure to conform may be being fired from a job or persecution or loss of property or even loss of life. Whatever the case is, this sinful and adulterous generation in which we find ourselves applies pressure on us to be ashamed of Jesus in the same way that they are ashamed of Jesus. To keep Jesus to ourselves to accept what they accept, celebrate what they celebrate, and be embarrassed of the truth that God himself has spoken. And Jesus, in this passage, issues a strong warning that this sinful and adulterous generation is not the place where you should find approval. (laughs) This is not the place where your most ultimate goal should be to fit in. For whoever is ashamed of me and of my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him will the Son of Man also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. There's another audience you should be more concerned with. After Jesus' resurrection, he ascended into the glory of his Father, into the courts of myriads of holy angels to sit upon a throne that is the only throne that carries authority in the universe. This is the court of appeal that we will stand before. Jesus in all of his glory, surrounded by angels singing holy, holy, holy for all of eternity. This is where Jesus is now, and it's the kind of glory Jesus will return with, and we will all meet him there, or we will meet him here in all of his splendor, and that great meeting or we stand before the king, at that meeting, your social standing will not matter at all. The approval of your friends, neighbors, co-workers, and family will not matter at all. The fact that you were liked, unoffensive, and were able to avoid awkward conversations throughout your life will amount to nothing. The only thing that will matter on that day is not whether mankind approved of you in this life, but whether Jesus approves of you in the next. It is final and eternal approval that we seek. But how? How can we have confidence on that day that Jesus will not be ashamed of us and this is where the beauty of the gospel of Jesus Christ comes to play 
this is where the true motivation is that drives us to give up or give away anything at all. Jesus' final and eternal approval of you is actually not performance-based. You do not have to be perfect to stand before him on the day of judgment. You do not have to meet some level of righteousness or boldness to stand before him on that day of judgment. I mean, Peter himself denies Jesus three times in the most climactic moment in the history of the world. (laughs) And then meets with Jesus afterwards. And Jesus employs him into the work of kingdom expanding. Jesus actually came to live the perfectly righteous life and to be perfectly bold on your behalf His suffering and death on the cross was a substitutionary one. He took your place so that you could stand approved forever and ever. So what does Jesus require of you then? What's the opposite of being ashamed of him? Now, this this verse doesn't mean that if you ever, like, chickened out of sharing the gospel, like, at the end, like, Jesus is going to be like, you're out. You remember that one time at Starbucks, you ordered a latte, you had that little feeling, you should share the gospel, you totally chickened out and went to your car and tried to forget about it. No more kingdom of God for you. That is not what this verse is implying. What's the opposite of being ashamed of Jesus and who he was and, and what he did? The opposite of being ashamed of Jesus is genuine saving faith in Jesus. It's not being ashamed in who Jesus was and what he did. It's cherishing it with all that you have. It's believing it. It's trusting it. It's clinging to it. The opposite of being ashamed is the believing in Jesus. The opposite of being ashamed is the being affectionately desire of Jesus as actually Lord and Savior. Behind everything that Jesus is teaching in this paragraph is a genuine saving faith that actually believes that Jesus is worth following. That's, that's why you deny yourself. Why would you spend your money differently? Why would you spend your time differently? Why would you put yourself in awkward conversations or in dangerous positions? Why would you move to the other side of the planet to learn a language, to put yourself in a third world country where you're experiencing all kinds of difficulties you would not have had to experience here in America? Why would you do it unless it's worth it? Unless you believed it's worth it? Unless you had faith? Why deny yourself, carry a cross, give up your life, resist the pressure of a sinful, adulterous generation that's crashing in you all the time? Faith. We believe Jesus is really God. We believe Jesus really has secured forgiveness through his sacrifice. We believe he really raised from the dead and offers eternal life to anyone who would believe. We believe that following him and leading others to follow him is the best course of action. (laughs) It's worth it. This is the kind of faith through which we are saved by his grace. This is the kind of faith we seek to grow in for the rest of our lives. It is not a blind repeating a prayer at the end of a sermon because you're afraid of going to hell. That's not faith in Jesus. Faith in Jesus is the faith that drives you to follow Jesus because you believe who he says he is. And what he's promised. We recently went to a missions conference. And I'll close with this. We recently went to a missions conference in, uh, over New Year's. And over the course of the conference, we're studying the scriptures together. But 
one after one, I mean, one after another throughout the conference, they, they invited missionaries just to stand up and tell their stories. Um, they invited these families with, uh, one family with twin boys and <laughs> uh, 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 families with all these kids and, and these joyful people. They invited them to stand up and to begin to tell their story of how they have obeyed this scripture to follow Jesus, to deny themselves of what the rest of the world says that they deserve and what uh, is owed to them. They tell the stories about them not listening to the culture and listening to Jesus instead. Families with small children living in remote villages in closed countries facing difficult living conditions, danger from persecution. One family gave 13 years of their life in Papua New Guinea and through their 13-year investment, they gave themselves to one, learning the country's language, then learning the tribe's language of people who've never heard of Jesus before in their lives. And once they mastered that language, they gave themselves to translating the entire Bible. First, they had to teach them their own language, how to write it, because they'd never written. They were in liter- illiterate society, so they had, to, they had to teach them to read so they could read the divine word of God. So they teach them to read. They translate the whole Bible. Thirteen years of labor in their mid-twenties to their mid-thirties. They gave themselves to, and now in Papua New Guinea, in a tribe that had never heard the name of Jesus before, there are Christians, there are elders, there is a translated copy of the Bible, and they gather together to hear the words of life every week, and disciples are made and going to heaven forever. Now, did they waste the prime years of their life? While everybody else, I mean, while everybody, I mean if they scrolled through their Facebook and they looked at, at the friends that they graduated with <laughs> and what they were doing. Like, I got this promotion or I got this thing or I did this thing. And they looked at all their friends they're celebrating with. Like, like, who was spending their life for something of eternal value? Our culture would say they're crazy. But the culture of the kingdom of God would say they're actually the only sane ones. <laughs> One lady told the story of how she and her husband were kidnapped and held hostage for an extended period of time. Her husband was killed in a gunfight that happened when they were rescued. And many years later, in her old age, uh, her captors had been um, arrested. And she now had the opportunity to lead them to Jesus through letters writing back and forth. And one thing that struck me at the end of her story, and there was a lot more to it, but one thing that struck me at the end of her story, uh, she looked out at the crowd of like, 5,000, you know, 18 to 25 year olds, and she said, I would not change a thing about my life. It was totally worth it. So let me close with just one simple question um, that our text this morning confronts us with. How would we in this room live our lives as if Jesus was worth following? I can't answer that for everyone, but I think it's a question that we should all be asking ourselves all the time. So let's pray and ask that the Lord would help us to ask that question and to answer that question over and over and over again. Lord, we love you. And I believe with my whole heart that there is an empty tomb And that the resurrected Jesus is my hope for eternal life. And I pray, Lord, that you would bring into alignment 
that creed, that statement of faith, and my life. And I pray for all of us as uh, as St. Rose Community Church that we would be a church that doesn't just settle for the cultural presuppositions and expectations of the way we think Jesus should be and the way we think following Jesus should look like, but that we would daily put it all on the table and let King Jesus lead us as he will. So we love you and we pray for that type of uh, humble submission and following of King Jesus. We pray all these things in his name. Amen.